Hello and welcome to CEO Stories, the podcast from the Greater Birmingham Chambers of Commerce, where I delve into the minds and journeys of some of the region's leading and up-and-coming CEOs. I'm Henrietta Brilly, Chief Exec of the Chamber and your host for today, and I'm delighted to be joined by Jason Wurrer, Chief Executive of Lioncroft Wholesale Limited. Jason, hello. Hi, Henrietta. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to be uh, pleasure to be here with you. Now, to start us off, could you just tell us a little bit about you and your organisation? Sure. Um, I, my organisation is Lioncroft Wholesale Limited. Um, we actually supply around 9,000 retail stores, independent retail stores around the region and um, the wider country, in fact, uh, exporting a little as well. Uh, and we supply everything from food, drink, tobacco, uh, beers, wines and spirits, ethnic foods, anything you'd find in a convenience store, basically. Uh, we also supply uh, bars, restaurants, casinos, clubs, uh, stadiums, such as Ed- Edgbaston Stadium, West Bromwich Albion, and uh, that's a really interesting business. And our background is um, we came from East End Foods. It was a carve-out of East End Foods after the sale of East End Foods, which I'd negotiated. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to exploring that, that journey through East End Foods and then that exciting sort of emergence of Lioncraft later on in the podcast. And before we get to that, when you think back over your career, when you, you think back of all of the steps that have led you to today, is there anything that stands out as particularly defining to you? Sort of a decision, a moment, anything where you go, yeah, that was a real defining moment? There's a number of things. I mean, I, I, I come from a family business so my parents... And uh, my dad and his four brothers started East End Foods in the 60s and with very little capital in Wolverhampton, built the company. I joined um, when I was, uh, well, I, I suppose I worked in the business all, all the way through from my teenage years, but joined the company after I'd finished my law degree um, back in 99, I think. And um, so having come through a family business, uh, there's been many, many moments that have, have kind of defined my approach and my uh, my take on on uh, my business career. Uh, uh, if I go back to very early days when I was, I was probably it's a slightly funny story, uh, probably about eleven years old, and I used to go in on on weekends and school holidays to go and stack shelves in the warehouse, help mom and dad out and so on. And there was one of our one of our managers in the warehouse who was um, quite old. He was he was, a, he was probably in his sixties, and one of the most respected guys and. I'd go and work with him and he'd kind of teach me how to stack shelves. And I started stacking these shelves of bottles and he gave me a clip around the ear. And I, I said, well, what have I done wrong? And he says, well, you're not, you're not facing the labels forward. And funnily enough, if you talk about a defining moment, even today, if I stack stuff at home in my cupboards, they've still got the labels facing forward. So, so that I suppose, in a small kind of way, is is an example, but but um, a silly example. But um, if I move on further uh, into my career, I I had uh, a mentor called Robin Alexander, and Robin Alexander was uh, the ex chief executive of Scottish and Newcastle breweries, uh, who now are known as Heineken and very, very influential man in the industry. And he came to mentor uh, me and my other cousins in the family. And he really uh, managed to make me see clarity and make me see a direction of what I wanted to do in my life individually and through the family business. And I suppose that really set the scene 
for me. I was always quite an ambitious person, but um, you know, I always wanted to be a law, uh, sorry, a, a barrister. So I was studying law. I did a master's in law and commercial law as well, and I, I was determined to be a barrister. But um, I always say that the Family businesses are like being in the mafia. Once you're in, you can't get out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so Robin really, really helped me plan and plot my journey of, of where I wanted to be from, from the age of, say, 23 years old to market up to 35. And I'm very proud to say that whatever I had in mind, the, the targets and the aims and ambitions, I managed to achieve by the time I was 35 and uh, and have continued in that vein since. Um other other defining uh, moments were uh, when we uh, when we opened our Aston branch, and I went to run that branch, and we've built one of the me and my team have built one of the most successful depots, uh, which is actually now part of Lioncroft, uh, one of the most successful depots in the country, um, and actually one of the most advanced depots. You've been there many times on TV interviews with me and so on. Um, so, so those are, that's just a little flavour of, of of certain defining moments. There are many, but those three kind of stick out in in my head. Fantastic! That's already giving me a sense of your sort of leadership style, shall we say that that clear focus on goals and achievement, attention to detail, but also that that team building around, as you say, the the Aston Depot. So now as regular listeners to the podcast will know, we do like to start at the beginning with our guest journey. So I'm going to take you back to being 11 years old on that shop floor in what I'm assuming is your first ever job. I'm assuming you weren't yeah, put to work yeah. before then too. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we won't go into that. But <laughs> um, So how did your career within East End as it was then develop? You know, like you say, you started off sort of really getting that that on the ground experience on the shop floor what did the roles you took within the organization look like over those years i think it gave me a flavor very early on in life uh, first of all i was lucky enough that uh, my family uh, my dad and his brothers had come here with with nothing really uh, and no finance uh, no no financial uh, strength and built a business from nothing and 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 built it up and Within that, uh, within many family business, obviously there's so many successful family businesses around the country, but um, it gave me a chance to get experience from the ground up. Uh, so that actually, I would say, puts things into your bloodstream, that work ethic. Uh, you, you, I didn't go and play football in my school holidays, but I suppose I did play around the warehouse and, and you know, stacking shelves, doing various things around the office and, and working my way through the organisation bit by bit, uh, to eventually then going to um, manage uh, a depot when I was 21, when I got my uh, got my degree. Um, two, two or three days after I'd finished my degree, I, I was pulled in and said, come on, we need you. You've got to go and run this depot, which, I, as I said, because I wanted to be a lawyer, I didn't necessarily see that as a lifetime career. But um, little did I know that that's what it would end up being. <laughs> and can you remember when that sort of switched for you when you suddenly went yeah actually I, I see my life in the family business quite quite a while after the uh, the first job which I would say was at 21 before 21 it was it was more of a weekends and things like that so uh, at 21 when I went in to manage one of the depots um, it was a very sharp learning curve very steep learning curve because I wasn't given any training so it was it was almost um assimilate the knowledge you have and and try and make your own way to manage this business 
in an area in a in a company that has a workforce that is um, very long serving, and they don't like the new boy in town, no matter which uh, which of the brothers' sons he was. And so you have to earn people's respect, and you have to you have to develop your leadership style very very quickly. You, you know, you make mistakes, but you've got to learn from them, and you've got to you move on. I I think I was probably five years into my uh, career in East End Foods before I realised that the barrister thing wasn't going to happen. I'd, I'd got my place in Lincoln's Inn. I was ready to go. I'd, I'd actually got a, a place in university on hold for the bar vocational course. But uh, I was probably about five years in before I thought, well, I've got to give that idea up now. Uh, but in some weird kind of way, I ended up handling legal work for East End Foods in the longer run. So I got a bit of my, my legal flavour <laughs> into the mix managed to find that sort of interest in the the day sure, job too yeah. um so of course you've, you've talked about it being a family business tell us more about what that looked like so what what's the structure of the family business how many family members what was it looking like at that stage gosh the early days it was uh, the first generation and the second generation so me and my cousins there were six cousins uh, five cousins sorry and five of the brothers who were the founding uh, people of, of the company the founders um, it was it was a good business. It's a very a very successful business, as we all know. Very hard work. And there were various family dynamics uh, in any family business and any family for that matter. There are dynamics that become quite challenging. Uh, but we always put the business first, and um, that was the most important thing because that was the kind of what I would term as a mothership. We've got to look after the mothership because it's it's what provides us and probably over 200 families, and no, in fact, 350 families at the time, with a livelihood. So um, it, was, it was challenging. It was um, kind of built your strength and your, your determination. And if anybody who focused on the job and anybody in the family who really wanted to do well was very successful and very, and, and got, you know, great reward out of it i think the the complexity in a family business comes when you start to hit third generation Mm. and the third generation the dynamics change the value sets change and it becomes probably more complicated to run the business your time gets split between running a business and running a family Mm. and that that becomes more and more challenges challenging as the years go by but nonetheless east end foods was a hugely successful business in in fact the most successful in its industry in Europe. And uh, we sold in 2019 because the family and the founders particularly wanted to retire. So, um, yes, very, very proud of what we achieved. And uh, I'm sure there'll be many listeners know. that still have East End food products in their cupboards. So it's yeah. a sort of ubiquitous oh, brand. They're still around. Yeah. They're still around, yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, as you say, you just touched on in 2019, East End Foods was sold to private equity. How was that experience for you as someone who's sort of grown up in the business? Um, quite honestly, for me personally, heartbreaking. I didn't necessarily want to see the business being sold. I thought that we had a lot of upside potential, huge upside potential. But um, I think it had come to the time where obviously the founders were looking for an exit and looking to uh, almost cash in the fruits of their labour and their life's work. And also, um, you know, 
kind of hand it over, hand the baton over to some someone else who could possibly grow it at a faster pace than we could. Um, so yes, it was it was heartbreaking, but and hence that's why I decided that I wanted the wholesale cash and carry business back, and did a deal straight away to uh, to do so and created Lioncroft Wholesale. So that was actually as as the sale was going on. Talk me through that time frame. So sales going on, it was at that moment that you're like, oh, I'm not I'm not letting this get away. I'm going to be keeping a bit of that. Was that that the the process for you? The process. I, I think that the the main thing for me was that um, I could see the private equity people were really after the brand, the products, uh, ethnic foods, and they didn't have an interest in in the wholesale business, which is traditional cash and carry, basically. Uh, we've got two depots in Birmingham and the Black Country, one in Smethwick, one in Aston, and we are actually uh, the third largest wholesaler in the UK, just with two depots. Our, co- our competition has 11 and um, nine depots, respectively. So we do punch above our weight. And the, the cash and carry business is a low-margin, high-volume business. Um, we've, we've taken, we've made a lot of changes to that business, over the last three years. But the, the key thing was to, the, the decision for buying it back was really that, first of all, the private equity people didn't necessarily, weren't interested in that field. So it may have become an asset stripped type of business. And I was, uh, with all the relationships I had within that business and having having been employed in the cash and carry and wholesale sector all my career, I was, um, really worried about the people that worked for us and, and our colleagues of many, many years who who were also quite insecure about their role and what might happen under new ownership. So it, it made perfect sense. The kind of, as I said, you know, in a way the stars aligned and um, I, I just felt that, you know, I had to I had to go and do a deal. And in any case, I was, I was what, f- early 40s at the time. So... I wasn't ready to retire. I wasn't ready to kind of hang up my boots and, and just, you know, sit on a beach somewhere. I'm not particularly that way inclined <laughs> in any case. But um, so it, it for me, it was a, it was an ideal um, means to keep my journey moving and build on the legacy that my family had and, and, I, and I had so successfully built over the years. Um, everybody I told thought I was crazy to do it. Absolutely thought I was crazy. Crazy. In fact, I um, I had a three year party at the ICC the other day, and Andy Andy Street had got up on the stage to give a small speech, and he he said it himself. He said Jason phoned me, and I thought he was he'd lost his mind. Why would he want to buy? I thought he'd be on a beach somewhere, but I wanted to buy it back, and I knew that I can grow this business um, with a with a great team, you know, for many many years to come. And you've been doing exactly that, haven't yeah. you? I think that the growth trajectory and your leadership has been quite phenomenal. Do you, want, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, in our game, the numbers are uh, the numbers are pretty large, but profits are quite low. So it's it's all about scale. It's all about volume. And um, we started out in 2019. The carved out business, uh, Lioncroft Wholesale, was 130 million turnover, 130 million pounds, with around about 140 staff. Uh, we've grown that in three years organically to 200 million. We've got about 200, 210 staff now. And um, we've built an absolutely wonderful team. We've got some great people. I've picked people who are 
uh, very challenging. Um, certainly my executive team, they're all from big companies like Coca-Cola or Numa Foods, Unitas Wholesale, uh, other suppliers, Weetabix and so on. So whoever I've picked, I've picked in, in, in a manner that is there to enable the growth of this business. And the culture is very, very important. So building the culture of the business was super important to us because the old East End Foods culture was very, um, I suppose, autocratic type of leadership, uh, very family-oriented, you know, the family with the managers and the leaders of the business. And really, um, that's a fairly one-dimensional view in my point of view. So I was very determined that, you know, the business as it was purchased by myself, my wife, Dolly, who's the COO, uh, my kind of sidekick in business, couldn't do without her. My younger brother, Indy, and my parents, Jazz and Pam. Um, so we're now, rather than having 50 members of the Wara family, we're five members of the Wara family. But we've got a great extended family that have, have joined us along the journey. And actually, the culture is absolutely amazing. Our vision for Lioncroft Wholesale is to be the best and most respected operator in our industry. And our values are honesty, opportunity, purpose and energy so be honest in all you do in all the relationships you have take advantage of the opportunities that present themselves and uh, have purpose and the purpose being obviously the values and, and the vision of the business and have the energy as a team to make things happen and you'll see that that spells hope so with many communities certainly i, I could say immigrant communities hope is the real cornerstone of of where we're at, you know, um, having hope to build a better tomorrow for for, all, for our families and, and, you know, for our business. So all of that has resonated really well and built a great culture in the business. And certainly the environment that you've been working through and showing that sort of growth in the business, the sort of support for the team, the focus on values. It's not been the easiest times for really the last three years, <laughs> has it? When we look back, you know, we've had everything from COVID-19 to Brexit to labour market shortages to an energy crisis. How has it felt? building that team and that culture in that environment. So I think as a leader, you've got to accept, and certainly as an entrepreneur, you've got to accept that challenge is always there. And the more you embrace and enjoy challenge, the faster you find the solutions to get over it. Uh, if I go back to COVID, now COVID, uh, we uh, were doing the transaction at the time. I was actually a director at the UHB um, QE hospital. I was a non-exec director as well, so we were having many board meetings around the issues of COVID. It was a bit of a double whammy of stress that I had the takeover going through, uh, or the buyback, I should say, and also the, the QE hospital and the various board responsibilities I had at the time. Um, very, very challenging, very challenging in terms of supply chain, but particularly challenging in terms of keeping people safe. So the people that were working in our depots, our colleagues, our prime objective there was to keep them safe. So we spent probably, you know, tens of thousands of pounds on PPE uh, when it wasn't available, actually. It was it was scarcely available. So we knew we were paying, you know, five, six, ten times more than we needed to. But at the end of the day, we had to keep people safe because we were open all the way through and we had to because we're seen as essential workforce, food supply. Um, we had to keep working all the way through. So it was, a, it was a really, really tough time. We got through that. We built our team. We actually 
also ended up uh, having everybody working from the office. So what we'd do is we would uh, have an ozone uh, ozone machine in the offices and the warehouse to clean the air every night. So you imagine there's there's something in the region of twenty odd football pitches worth of space, and we're we're having machinery clean the air overnight every night, and um, cost us a fortune. But the 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 outcome, the most positive outcome, obviously was that we didn't really have any COVID cases throughout that time. Uh, we also managed to get the um, vaccinations for our colleagues very, very early on, and that kept them safe. So there was, there was lots of stuff going on that, that you know, we, we found a solution to overcome the issue. Go to Brexit, again, you know, supply chain, People don't talk about it. They're too embarrassed, I think, to talk about it. I don't know what, what's going on because the, the, the actual reality of Brexit, in my opinion, being in business, is that our supply chains have crumbled. And because these supply chains have crumbled, we, we blame it on other stuff. The media blames it on other stuff. But actually, Brexit is a big part to play in, in the supply chain weakness of this country today. And um, we, we do have to find a solution as a nation to to fix that as fast as we possibly can because the cost of living crisis is having a massive effect on people and their ability to to you know handle their families and, and sustain their families in financially so um, brexit has has created a lot of supply chain issues around my business and we work we work through it labor market shortages same principle again quite limit quite uh, linked to the brexit um, challenges but the labour market has been extremely challenging. In fact, I've found it easier to get executives than I have to find to find shop floor workforce. So, uh, over the last three years, you know, it's been incredibly challenging to get the the workforce because you you want long. T- we we don't take temp people. We don't take agency staff. We we want long term people who are willing to stay with us for a very long time, and that's what builds the culture of the business. So, you know. That has been an incredible challenge over the last three years. Now I'm going to bring you on to another area of your life now that actually you, you sort of touched on when you mentioned being a non-executive director of University Hospitals Birmingham. Um, so family values, they are so central to what you, you do as a leader and how you are as a leader. But another area that stood out to me is your commitment to being part of the civic community, You know, being out there giving back, whether it's through charities or business roles. And you know, you've held a number of prominent non-executive director roles, including past president of the Asian Business Chamber of Commerce, current chair of the West Midlands India Partnership. Tell me about, a bit about that side of your work and what it is that motivates you to engage with it. So initially, when I was a, a young lad, in my 20s, it was to, I was determined not to be a clone of my family members <laughs> uh, for positive reasons, not, not, not because they're bad people, but <laughs> it just, um, and, and part, of the, uh, part of the process I was mentioning earlier with Robin Alexander being my mentor uh, was that I wanted to develop myself in a way, be it from educational uh, background and also, because um, I did, I did a lot on the educational side. I, after my master's in law, I, I did a chartered director qualification with the IOD, and I was the youngest in the world with that qualification. Um, so I was very proud of having achieved. I'm not a particularly academic person, by the way, but um, but somehow I just got into wanting to learn more. And part of learning is actually the peer group that you mix with. 
and by putting yourself in situations that you're not quite comfortable with. So I felt that, you know, I, I started, um, uh, I chaired the Institute of Directors and that really, that really kind of kicked the journey off in, in my, what I would call the kind of outside of the work, outside of East End Foods work that I do in my voluntary work. And I've, I've held, as you said, an, a number of positions over the years. But the Institute of Directors Chairmanship was the first. And um, quite honestly, I went to the interview just to see if I could handle an interview because I've not been to an interview before. <laughs> and uh, and I, I suddenly got the job and I thought, oh, oh dear, I've, you know, <laughs> I've, got to, I've got to do this now. You know, um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I was the youngest ever chairman of the IOD and the first of ethnic origin in 120-year history. So, uh, again, quite a proud um, feeling and proud moment for me to, to have got that position. It taught me a lot. I met a lot of very interesting people and actually opened a huge amount of doors for me. So one thing led to another, to another, to another, and I, over the years, have, have ended up, um, I've ended up from the Institute Director's Chairmanship. I, I had a role in advising uh, Prime Minister Cameron's government, or number 10 in particular, and David Cameron when he was Prime Minister. So I was part of a group of people that used to go to Downing Street every um, couple of months or so to give them a briefing of, of what was going on in the world of business. Um, I have also um, had, I've been on the board of the Spirit of 2012, the Olympics inquiry, to see what the legacy of the Olympics was it's a it's a project that finished last year, uh, with a report going into Birmingham into uh, sorry the central government about the legacy of the Olympic Games, the Platinum Jubilee, uh, and certainly the coronation following that, um, Commonwealth Games and so on. So how do we build this legacy, uh, which these games brings and uh, these events bring, in into the country, uh, and bring society into it. Uh, I've also been on Prince uh, Charles, well, then Prince Charles, now His, his Maj Majesty the King, his charities over the years. I was one of the first people in the West Midlands board of the Prince's Trust um, and uh, non-executive director of uh, University Hospitals Birmingham and also a board member, a council member of Aston University. Um, just trying to think. Um, more recently, I, I've done I've done a number of, <laughs> number of positions, so I've... I, I can't remember half the time. Uh, but uh, more recently, I became the chairman of the West Midlands-India Partnership. This is particularly um, a proud moment because I was chosen to be the first ever chairman, the inaugural chairman of the in India Partnership. And it was, it was basically formed to bring in investment into the West Midlands from India and also take British businesses over to to India um, and help them set up over there. And we've had a great three years. The first three years, again, this was shortly after, shortly before the Lioncroft takeover in 2020. And we've had a, a great three years and it's just been announced um, that for the first time ever, there was more foreign direct investment coming from India into the, into the West Midlands than uh, that of America for the first time ever. So uh, that's something I'm really happy that me and my team have managed to achieve. I've got some great people on my team at the Indy Partnership. So yeah, that's gone very well. Yeah, and a fantastic impact. And do you still find, even with all of these roles, do you still learn something from each of them? You learn from every discussion, every interaction you have with people. 
and as long as you're you've got an open mind so you could have any discussion and i think one of the other thing with civic or voluntary work is uh, the importance of charity and i've just set up a lioncroft foundation so on our birthday party third birthday party on the 29th of june at the icc i announced that we were um establishing our lioncroft foundation and we put 200,000 pounds aside for charity and good causes my, char- my my immediate family, myself and my dad um, and, and wife, we, we, we do donate a lot to charity in any case. But but um, this foundation will enable us to increase and improve the impact of of our business and 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 donate a degree of profits or even fundraise through the foundation in order to help society, be it in Birmingham, uh, nationally or, or internationally. And back in 2017, you were awarded an OBE for services to business and international trade. How did it feel to get that recognition for all of the that you do that goes so above and beyond the day job? Well, I can only say that you you always, certainly a, a massive degree of surprise because you never know who's put you forward. I didn't have a clue who's put me forward. Prior to that, actually, when I was 33, I think, I was... Um, humbled and honoured to receive an honorary doctorate from Aston Uni. And um, and that, again, came as a huge surprise. But when I got the OBE, I was, uh, I was just blown away. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. Uh, as I said, to this day, I don't know who's put me forward for it. I'm glad they did. <laughs> but um, I think on that year, I, I was 39 when I got it. So, it was, you know, um, you know, just... Even even the fact that I got it before I hit forty uh, really surprised me. Um, yeah, it just humbles you. It, it 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 makes you feel that there's someone out there looking and and saying, "Oh, you're doing a good job," you know, validating what 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 you do in a way. And it's um it's very nice. It's very nice. Absolutely. And um back to the start of your journey. You know, you're you're sort of Birmingham born and bred, starting off from the uh, the centre in Aston. Um, today, what's your favourite thing to do in Birmingham? Well, you can see from my frame, Henrietta, that I like food. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, being in the food industry as well, um, I I love the food culture in this city. I think that uh, the culture. When I look back, when I was a kid growing up in Birmingham, it was a very different place. Very very different place. Uh, nowhere near as dynamic, nowhere near as vibrant as we have today. And uh, you look at the food culture, and I think the, the important thing about food culture is it's the easiest entry point to get to know other cultures. So um, what we've got in this uh, in this city, be it from, you know, Handsworth or Sparkbrook or Small Heath, you know, the Balti Triangle, all the way up to the six or seven, I think, Michelin-style restaurants we have, you know, most outside of London, the vibrancy of that food culture is unbelievable. Uh, I like um, one of the one of the most uh, well-established uh, Michelin restaurants in the city, uh, particularly Simpsons, and I particularly like their olive bread. That's what I really enjoy the most when I go there. That's uh, one of my favourite breads in there, oh, yeah, I think, yeah. ever as well. Yeah. So uh, yeah, well, we olive had the, bread. Funnily enough, we had the <laughs> chef at the ICC make me some at, uh, at our party, which is brilliant. Uh, restaurants like a dear friend of mine, Aktari Islam, with Ophim, uh, excellent interpretation of Indian food and and bringing Indian food into that kind of real haute cuisine 
end of the spectrum uh, and, and world class. I mean, you know, I don't think I've, I've eaten at all kinds of restaurants around the world, but, you know, it really sits up there in the top league. Um, and then other, other, other nice restaurants recently, Aurel has, has been a nice addition. Dishoom, there's so many, so many to mention, but I think the food culture is, is, is amazing and the social life. So when I get time, I, I tend to do, I tend to do that. I tend to like to go to restaurants with friends. Um, and outside of that, I suppose it's, um, Formula One, cricket, I, I really enjoy because we, we supply Edgbaston Stadium. So I've got a, I've got a box there and we, we have a very close relationship with that team. Um, and I love going to watch the cricket. It's, it's a great day out. Yeah, really good fun. Yeah, when it comes to cricket and food, you're in the best possible place in Birmingham, Absolutely, aren't you? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, so picking up on uh, your three-year celebration for Lioncraft, um, I would say we've been talking about the fantastic growth that you've seen over those last three years, some of the amazing initiatives you've launched, like the, the Charitable Foundation, um, alongside the, the growth of the business. Um, you've also seen some great recognition over those last three years, including winning the UNITAS National Wholesaler of the Year Award for 2023. But that's quite a lot for three years. What's next for Lioncraft? I think, first of all, it's thank you to the team, because... The team and the culture that we've put together has really created a very, very vibrant business. And that's what's enabling us to grow at a pace. Um, what's next? I've set myself a target of um, building this business in the first, say, six or seven years. I'm not I'm not pushed by shareholders, so I can I can stretch the target a little bit. But the first target for me is building it to a 500 million pound business. Um, the sterling value or the monetary value isn't what drives me. It's the that's a signal of the scale of the business and what we can do in the market. We've set up a uh, great hospitality supply business, which is what supplies um, so it's Lionecroft Hospitality, and that that's uh, supplying Edgbaston, West Bromwich Albion. We're talking to a lot of other stadiums in the in the region, and also loads and loads of restaurants. You know, some of the names that we all know and love in the city. Uh, so that's another great angle for us. Um, we are. Also looking at our own, we've launched our own food brand. So currently it's for catering suppliers, so restaurants, and it's the Lioncroft food, you know, the Lioncroft foods brand. Um, so we're doing all kinds of tinned foods and sauces and oils and kitchen products and so on. And we're also looking outside of that to range, uh, sorry, build a wider range of products. So things like wines or, you know, uh, certain uh, other we've got we've got uh, rice and we've got uh, lots of different products that we've launched so that will all all help build the company to the target that we want uh, i'm looking at actually making another depot so a third depot for the first time outside of birmingham and that will that will obviously take us to a more national scale and following that depot and building that depot into a successful venture we will look at building other other branches around the country, and also um, buying other businesses and, and bolstering the capabilities of our company, because it can't all be about organic growth. It's uh, some of it's got to be about looking at businesses in the market and attaching them to us, and you know because they may have a knowledge or a or a skill set that we don't currently have. So there's lots and lots of different strands of what we're working on, uh, digital. Here's another thing. I come from a quite a traditional industry that isn't particularly strong on digital. We've we've put uh, about a million pounds aside for investment into digital strategies. 
And uh, I've also recently started working on social media, doing posting on social media for the first time, which is quite, quite. Uh, I know this is going to sound hopeless, but, you know, it's quite interesting to see the kind of reaction you get. Where can our listeners find you on social media? Oh, God. It's opportunity uh, for a quick Dr. So Twitter's uh, hashtag Dr. Wara. And on LinkedIn, I am um, just Jason Wara, OBE, I think. Um, and then we've got the Lioncroft uh, Lioncroft uh, wholesale LinkedIn um, name and also on Twitter. Fantastic. And, you know, I'm not surprised at all, going back to the beginning of our conversation, where you talked about how you set some very clear goals with your mentor and then absolutely smashed through them. Uh, I'm not surprised at all to hear that your future plans involve lots of really ambitious goals, objectives, plans for the business. And I fully believe you're going to smash through those too. Fingers crossed. Now, we're through to the part of the podcast where we do a couple of wider reflections just to, to wrap up the conversation. Um, now, you've touched on someone a number of times as a, a big mentor and a big influence in your career. That's Robin Alexander. And when you think back, is it Robin that really stands out to you as a leader or individual that's inspired you along the way? Or are there, there are others that have uh, inspired you too? There's many people in Birmingham that have inspired me, many people that I meet that inspire me in, in various ways and too many names to mention, really. Uh, Robin, uh, because it was so early on in my career, had really helped me forge my thought process and my kind of level of de- determination as to what I wanted to achieve. Outside of that, I think there's 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 some famous, famous names um, that, you know, leaders generally in, in the world, uh, politically or in business. Uh, Nelson Mandela is an obvious one because of the struggle that, that he had to overcome apartheid. And and um, I remember um, F.W. de Klerk handing over the baton to Nelson Mandela. And I had, a, I had an interesting occurrence. A few years ago, Jesse Jackson came to our premises and we, we held a, a dinner uh, on the evening and it was a great degree of pride. You know, he cut the ribbon for the Aston building, you know, we welcomed him with his team. And uh, sadly, Nelson Mandela passed away on the night. So the evening took quite a turn. And Jesse Jackson started to tell some stories of his experiences with Nelson Mandela, which actually brought it more to life as to the struggle and the determination. And it, it just gives you that, that element of, you know, if you've got your mindset on something, you can, you can do it. And humility and, and you know, all, all of that. Um, so he's one of the one of the people. Ratan Tata from the Indian uh, side of the spectrum, uh, a very admirable businessman, and really got his focus on CSR and communities and society. So whatever the Tata family do, they always do with a slant towards what they can do to impact society. Richard Branson, you know, Richard Branson is an interesting character because of his steely determination to you know he built a multi-billion dollar enterprise from nothing a true entrepreneur they're obvious names i know but but you know we still got to respect them we still got to say they have achieved a lot so if i can even get to five percent of what these guys have achieved it'll be fascinating and this brings me neatly on to our final question and that's if you could share just one piece of advice for aspiring chief executives what would it be it's hard to bring it down to one piece of advice. I think that um, in leadership, you've got to be determined and single-minded to achieve your goal. 
have faith in your own ability and your own conscious. Uh, honesty is very important. Integrity is very important. Um, and understand that, that as a leader, you are pretty much on your own, but you've got to build a team around you and sell your dream to people in a manner that they totally buy into it and they're very confident that it's achievable. And I think that that really is is the crux, in my opinion. I mean, I, I'm only, I would have thought halfway through my career, but but um, I think that 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 single mindedness, that determination, is so important because it's a lonely place. So so you've got to be, you've got to have faith in yourself, even at the low points. There are many, you know, you do fail, but you got to get up and you got to you you got to carry on. So it's that single mindedness, the determination, honesty, integrity, and also bringing people with you and one of the ways of bringing people with you is to enable them to do well for themselves i go back to our values of honesty opportunity purpose and energy hope which then starts to develop your team and culture fantastic well thank you so much for joining us today jason uh, and for sharing all of that advice insight and your journey to date which it's like you say probably only halfway through so we're gonna have to get you back in a few years time to hear <laughs> about the latest um now for those listening at home do remember to subscribe to ceo stories wherever you get your podcasts follow jason on social media and also check out the chamber at grb ham chambers on twitter or x whatever we're supposed to be calling it now greater birmingham chambers of commerce on linkedin and you can find out more about our work at www.greaterbirminghamchambers.com mm-hmm.